You are listening to the Innovators Behind Disruption, a podcast series brought to you by Evolve ETFs. The world is evolving. Your investments should too. Hi there, this is Raj and I'm joined by Sal Naren. Sal was the co-founder of Borowell, uh, which is a Canadian fintech and innovative marketplace lending platform. And currently, he's also the co-founder of Savvy. Sal, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So perhaps you could start by giving a quick introduction to Borowell. I think a lot of people have heard of the firm before, and then maybe talk a little bit more about what you're doing now uh, at Savvy. Yeah, sure. Um, listen, uh, you know, as, as you mentioned, as co-founder of Borowell and the CTO at the very early stages, uh, and in 2014, uh, you know, Andrew Graham and myself, uh, you know, Andrew approached me and said, "Hey, how do we make lending, you know, faster, fairer, and friendlier?" And that was kind of the genesis of, of Borowell. Uh, you know, if you look at Borrowell today, um, it's really focused on empowering Canadians to make better decisions about their credit, uh, of which one product is is a personal loan. But uh, if you if you know if you are a member of Borrowell, um, you see that they're you know one of the few companies in Canada that will give you your credit score, and then their their mandate really is to help Canadians uh, make better decisions around their credit, educate them, and and make them better uh, financial. Uh, savvy people, uh, you know. By contrast, Savvy is, is a you know, and I would almost classify Borrowell as a FinServe company that uses technology uh, to provide their members with uh, better experiences, better product matching. You know, by contrast, Savvy uh, is a technology company. You know, we're enterprise SaaS B two B, and what we do is we provide lending infrastructure. Um, so what that means is underwriting, origination, and servicing technology to banks and lenders to help give their employees better tools at their disposal. And by in our, our thesis is if the employees of lenders have better tools, have better experiences, have tools that make them shine, the customer experience around lending changes and becomes better. And, and that's really where the future of, of lending is going. Um, so those are kind of the, the differences, two, two totally different business models and two totally different customers. Great. So a couple of themes I think we're going to have in this podcast uh, are going to be artificial intelligence and, and obviously they coexist with data. Uh, and I want to I do a bit of a deeper dive into both those areas. So let's start with AI. Um, how does AI work within and get maybe you can give us some examples of how does AI work within the financial services industry right now? Yeah, I, I, good question. And I think there you know AI is such a hot topic um right now and and um if you actually peel the onion of financial services uh not much has changed in the last 50 years. You know ever since a brick and mortar branch um existed uh to where we are today, you know, we've digitized certain aspects of a financial uh, you know, a bank's experiences, you know, there's companies like Borwell that are digitizing lending, um, there's ca- companies like Wealthsimple that are digitizing investments, um, but not much has changed in the core product offering, and, and I think, you know, my belief is that uh, we're just at the tip of the iceberg on how AI actually um, will enable or provide next generation of, of products uh, from financial service companies. You know, when I when I think of artificial intelligence, um, you know, intelligence has been around the industry forever. Humans have been making decisions uh, about people, product, 
um, and and experiences ever since you know there has been product being developed in financial services, and I think that when we talk about AI, what we're trying to do is like how do we use data that we're capturing uh, now, which is very different than data that was captured. Uh, 40 years ago on carbon copy paper because A, it's, it's digitized at the source and B, it's, it's um, hopefully a little bit cleaner. But how do we use that data to provide um, intelligent uh, products, experiences to customers? So what I mean by that is that, you know, how do we provide just-in-time experiences? How do we give the person the, the thing that they need to reduce uh, stresses in their life? So, you know, whether that be a loan or a mortgage or um, you know they're sitting on a bunch of cash and how do we provide better returns for them? Those are all areas where better data, uh, more data and intelligence can be uh, used uh, more effectively. Um, you know, when you think about it, it really comes down to that we are collecting more data because we are, uh, you know, in many instances 100% digital when it comes to these products now. And by collecting this data, we're able to then dig deeper into this data to actually understand why people need products and, and, and are going for certain products. So I think when I think of intelligence, it's always been there. Artificial intelligence, I mean, one could argue that humans are also artificially intelligent. You know, we've been making decisions about financial products for customers uh, in our minds, you know, whether it's an underwriter or uh, you, you know your your local banker that's helping you decide what to do with your investments and what funds to put them in. But intelligence has always been there. Uh, it's really been the advent of us collecting more data that has now you know brought these things like machine learning and deeper learning into uh, the forefront of, of, of data analytics. So where do you stand? You know, staying on AI. Where do you stand uh, from a regulatory perspective? Do you think that we we should have regulations around artificial intelligence, and what would that kind of look like in your world? Yeah, I mean, good question. I think we're because we're still at, you know, it's still very um, early. Absolutely, I think you know, there's kind of two uh, types of AI out there right now. There's you know what's known as black box AI and and kind of glass box AI or explainable AI. And I think, at least given my experience and where I come from in financial services, we're we're a long way, if ever. Um, you know, from black box AI deciding how we, uh, you know, procure or, or distribute financial products to people. I mean, the idea that a machine without any explanation will decide whether you get a loan or a mortgage or a certain return or a product or a proof of product is, is I think, kind of far-fetched today. I'm not saying it's impossible. Um, so I think we're more along the lines of... Um, explainable AI or really what's really happening today is still early is kind of machine learning. So we're taking a whole bunch of data and we're saying that this has happened in the past and how do we now extrapolate that and in, and help other people that may fall into a certain quadrant or a certain mix and give them the right product. So we're really doing machine learning and financial services right now for products. Um, as for regulations, there, there absolutely needs to be some type of regulatory uh, you know, aspect to uh, machines or, or computers or data deciding why someone gets something. And I think we've seen some of that, you know, kind of in the GDPR, um, you know, uh, policy that's come out. And, and, you know, there is this concept in, in GDPR that um, algorithms need to be explained why they give someone something or, or decide on certain decisions. Um, so I think we are at the beginning of this story 
regulators are trying to catch up and figure out like what's the exposure that we have right now, what are the bad things that can happen, and how do we protect consumers from that? For our listeners, uh, GDPR stands for uh, General Data Protection Regulation. Uh, so Sal, uh, I know that that's obviously been instituted in uh, the European Union. Um, are you expecting similar rules to GDPR uh, really being rolled out uh, here? And uh, if so, what kind of rules are being rolled out, uh, rolled out right now? Yeah, so I mean, in Canada, for, for, for listeners, Canada, we have like PAPIDA, that, that is like the, the general privacy rule across data in Canada. And I think in the U.S. has similar uh, privacy rules. And I think Mexico actually just very recently came out with some federal data protection law that is very much in line with GDPR. But, you know, in Canada right now, we do have similar laws to GDPR. I think what's different in Canada is that there's just a little bit of openness to interpretation of how to enforce those laws and how those laws are enforced. Uh, you know, very recently, I think it was November that it actually got implemented. PIPEDA was updated, and, and now, you know, there is um, this concept that if there's data breaches, uh, companies are responsible to inform their their members or, or their users of those data breaches and the extent of those data breaches. So I think we see the Canadian government, or at least I see the Canadian government, um, definitely moving on on uh, something very much in line with GDPR. I, I think it's already actually there. It's just interpreted more openly, and I think they're tightening that interpretation. And I, I, can, I think it will continue to see you know, uh, quarter or, or year after year strengthening of, of consumer privacy data protection laws. Um, you know, in the U.S., there's two bills, I believe, that are kind of sitting there waiting to uh, to see if they go past, you know, the different government um, government sections to see if they go into into play. But, you know, a state like California is very much progressive on, on uh, putting in privacy laws that are very much in line with, with GDPR. So I don't think GDPR is far-fetched. Uh, I think we do have uh, GDPR-like uh, rules. They're just interpreted slightly differently, and we'll see a more strengthening and a more maturation of, of, the, of our privacy laws under PIPEDA in Canada. So you're pretty entrenched uh, as it relates to the financial services side, uh, as well as you know the integration of, uh, of AI. M maybe we can kind of take a step back. Ta talk to me about what your views are uh, on banking and the traditional banking model and how technology, AI, data is really changing the overall face of banking as we know it. Yeah, I think, listen, there's, there's kind of three core industries, at least in Canada. You know, there, there's, there's, there's healthcare, there's government, and there's banking. And, and banking is, is, is something we're very proud of as Canadians and, and something we hold near and dear. And again, I'll go back to uh, what I said. I mean, banking has grown from an a decentralized model of branches existing in communities um, in you know the 70s, 60s, 50s, even before that, to you know a centralized model because of the the internet and digital and mobile, where all of a sudden now all this data kind of has to live in a central place. Um, you know the individual personal relationships need to become digitized, so we have all these you know digital arms. And I think when I look at banking um, as a whole and where we are. Um, the banking is very much a bunch of disparate systems that talk to each other just because of the nature of how banking has become centralized 
uh, going from a branch model that still exists and still needs to be supported into a digital model. And so when you take a system or a group of systems that were developed for one purpose of providing product in branch and then you try and maintain that experience and digitize it, you run into a problem or what we're seeing is that A, data lives in multiple places, um, B, it's disconnected, and C, it's data that was collected for very different reasons than um, how are we going to apply machine learning or deeper learning on this data. Um, so when you have data that's collected uh, for, to provide, you know, application for product and you're saying you're, you're coming in today's world where how do we provide better products or more relatable products to people, um, the first thing that needs to change is the data that we collect. And I think we've seen this happen in newer industries like e-commerce, um, you know, direct-to-consumer uh, marketing where it's not just the transaction that matters is where we're collecting, you know, what, what's known as kind of event-driven data. So the story behind the data. I think a good example that we share uh, when we when we're talking about savvy and the infrastructure is that, you know, if you take something like an Amazon, Amazon uses a very event-driven architecture, and this is kind of the architecture that needs to come into financial services and slowly is coming into financial services. And so when we say event-driven architecture, when you go into an Amazon and you purchase something, and uh, let's take an example, you know, as a, as a father of purchasing diapers. So I, you know, I, I typically go on, I search for Pampers, I know what we like, and I put them in my cart, and Amazon's smart, like, hey, we've got Huggies on sale. And so I, I might, you know, implore the idea, and I'll look at the Huggies, I'll look at the reviews, I might change the quantity, I might add Huggies to my cart, I might remove them, but I finally make a transaction. Amazon has stored all that unstructured data with that final transaction, and it's not an afterthought. It's like the beginning of a thought. It's like this: these small pieces of data are continuously streaming to Amazon while you're in progress. And the truth is no financial service entity currently is actually doing this. And that's really where the future of data has to go to for us to really get into like where does AI land, where does machine learning land, how do we customize products on a mass scale. And so I think the first thing that needs to happen in financial services is there needs to be a change in the data model uh, and the systems that hold the data. And that's a big, big ask because, I mean, a lot of these are still mainframe systems that have been, you know, layered on with digital, um, digital experiences or digital uh, pieces. And it's very hard to change that infrastructure. So I think where we'll see more of this happening is, you know, as we get into kind of, um, you know, open banking or, or different concepts that are, are coming out where banks aren't necessarily having to have to rip out their hearts, um, and, you know, the, a, a, to, to, to leverage these newer technologies. And they can partner with, with technology companies that uh, help them enable and create the next uh, digital experiences, digital data collection, digital, um, you know, products. So I think the biggest problem banks have today is that their legacy is their problem. I mean, they're, they're, they're excellent at customer acquisition. They're excellent brands. Uh, they're amazing at, at supporting the millions of people that are on their platforms. But they can't move quick enough, and, and they aren't able to adapt to, um, you know, what's happening else in other industries. 
So talking about bricks and mortar, I've got a multiple choice question for you. Five years from now, are there more bank branches, less bank branches, or the same numbers we have today? Um, I, I, my, my intuition says there's less bank branches, not significantly less, because listen, there's still people that need to be served. We're not changing that quickly. So in my mind, financial services doesn't change in, in a year. It doesn't change in, in, it's not a revolution. It's an evolution over the next 20 years. So, I mean, when I look forward 20 years, or let's say, you know, five years at a time, I think there are less bank branches. I think, you know, communities will still need bank branches. The concept of what a bank branch will change dramatically. And I think we saw that, you know, with the INGs of the world uh, very early on. And what does a bank branch mean? Um, you know, we're still at a point where humans, at least my generation of humans, need physical touch with people to make decisions. You know, I still visit my advisor quarterly to talk to him about investments, and I'm a technology freak. And, and But I think, you know, I grew up in a time where I opened a branch when I was six years old. I had a bank book. I walked into the RBC. They gave me a friggin' stuffed lion uh, and I'm still an RBC customer at the same branch, right? Like I went and I'd update that bank book every time I deposit five bucks from allowance. Yeah. And so you have a relationship, and and there's still listen. I'm not old. I'm I'm in you know my early 40s. I'm still going to be around for another you know hopefully 30, 40 years, and I I'll still want that physical presence of a bank branch. You know, if I fast forward and I look at my children, their relationship with a bank is really just a payment processor. It's somewhere they put their money so that they can tap their phone when they buy something, right? It's a very different um, a different concept. They've never gone into a branch. If they can do something on their phone or on their computer, they'll gravitate towards that. So I think as we see these generational changes happening, the role of the branch will change into a more of a social place, um, a place where still, I'm sure, my, when my daughter wants to buy her first home, besides talking to me, it's still a very large purchase. You might want a physical place and, and to go and discuss something, but it won't be a traditional, you know, teller branch where you're withdrawing money. I mean, the whole concept of payments is going to change on its head in the next 10 years, right? So I think we'll still have branches. There'll be fewer branches. I think communities will still have a place where there's a presence of a, you know, a, an RBC, a TD, a CIBC, uh, you know, a BMO. Uh, and a national bank for the big six, just to not, <laughs> to, uh, but I think it'll, our relationship with banking will change dramatically. No, I, you know, you brought up that point about how you like the, you still like the bricks and mortar, but it's also like about the, the, the cash aspect of it. You know, a few friends of mine, as we were, as I was bringing up my daughters, said, said to me that when you go out with your kids, Pay pay for things with cash because they don't they can't comprehend the value of money when you're paying for everything with cards and in today's world obviously tap as well as 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 your phone so I think we you know we need to do probably a better job of making sure kids understand the value of money because right now it's just this electronic processing uh, vehicle and they don't fully understand what goes into earning it and spending it. Yeah, no, and it's a totally different world. I mean, I, I totally, I mean, that's very interesting. I never, I don't use cash at all. No, neither do I. People, people told me I should do it, and I did it for like, I think maybe a couple of weeks, and then I got tired of having to go to the bank machine and take cash out, so I just went back to my cards. And yeah, so I think like, there's just such a different diversity of, of, of based on generation. I, I still look at my father, and he carries cash, right? And, and, yeah. uh, and so I think we're not at the point where there's no more branches. I think 
I won't be here in a hundred years, but it wouldn't be surprising if, if you know, there weren't bank branches or, or bank branches totally turned on their head to be like Amazon shopping place. I don't know what, what where we'll be, but um, so you brought up so so Sal, you brought up Amazon a couple of times. I'm curious yeah. from your perspective. Um, do you think that in the next I don't know three five years that we will see the likes of Google, maybe Amazon, maybe um, uh, some of the other big tech firms actually enter into the financial services industry? Um, yes and no. So I think we've seen some of it, and it's it and there's been some retreatment. So I think like my just from the industry I'm in, I, I know Google launched a mortgage comparison product uh, maybe a couple of years ago, and they got out of it after some time. And I think uh, we still have a separation right now mentally in our minds between financial services and life, uh, and that, that might just be a, a cognitive issue we have as humans that we're very, our financial health and our financial data is very personal to us, and we still aren't as open book with as it is with uh, other things. I remember us doing kind of a little survey or a little uh, introspect at Borrowall very early on, and, you know, we, we compared someone's debt to, like, you know, someone's, you know, dieting and complication, you know, weight, uh, not complication, but struggles with, with weight and, and how, how the level of personal um, feelings we have towards that. So I, so I think, yes, they will enter the market. It'll have to be on products that we are less sensitive about. It won't be, I think, lending, but maybe it's point of sale uh, debt uh, availability. I think that's, you know, a place where I could see them entering the market. I know Amazon's tried to come out with a credit card. I don't know what the take-up of has been that. And I also, you know, something that I find really interesting, like, at some point, is there some type of revolt that happens that we finally, like, look and say, you know, I, I'm of the mindset of the technology person. Um, I'm not doing anything, very, I believe, very special compared to anybody else, so I don't really care. I buy things online. I, I you know, I'm not doing anything legal, I'm not, I feel like I'm floating with everybody else. So I, you know, you want my data, you want to use my data, if it gives me convenience, I don't mind. But I look at someone like very, like my wife, who's just like, I'm not going to do this stuff. And so I think, I, I think, again, we're going to have early adopters, and I, I do believe Amazon and Google will come into um, some type of financial product. It would be difficult in Canada initially, I think, given the regulatory uh, nature of being a bank or providing financial services uh, and the compliance, and it would be a beast of an effort for, I think, these companies to fall under those um, laws and, the, and those regulations. So I think that might be something that is kind of a, a roadblock. Um, and to be honest, I think there's probably lower hanging fruit for revenue for the Amazons and the Googles of the world than to get into financial services. But there's no doubt in my mind I see them entering into uh, financial services uh, at some point. And I think they've tried a few times through various um, aspects. I think, you know, one something that's close and, and t closer to us is kind of Rogers, right? And Rogers coming out with their bank license. And, uh, you know, now they have a credit card for payment processing. Sal, have you ever heard of the golden rule? No, I probably have, but I... I mean, so the, uh, the golden rule is, it's pretty simple. He who has the gold makes, or she, uh, who has the gold, uh, makes the rules. And if you prescribe to the fact that data 
is the new gold, which we often hear uh, out there all the time how valuable data has become now, then how many companies have more data than companies like Google and Apple and so on and so forth. So, you know, it'll be be interesting to see. And the only other comment that I would make, I don't know what they're going to do in financial services, but the only other comment that I would make is, you know, when you look at the banking sector, unfortunately, you know, the average person out there trusts companies like Apple and like Google, maybe not Facebook, but Apple and Google and Amazon, more than they trust banks. So if some of those big tech firms actually did get involved in financial services, I actually think that they'd be quite successful. Yeah, I agree with you. I think it's not a matter of like if, it's when they do and what the product is. And, and, um, you know, once you start with one product, it becomes very easy to kind of add on, right? And and very similar to models that banks use today, cross-sell other things, right? And and uh, right. Um, like once you're in the ecosystem, uh, it's hard to get out. And I think that's also the barrier that exists right now. Like we are all in ecosystems of our own banks, and to get us out is a little bit of work, especially for Canadians. Uh, yeah. But once we get out um, – but but that concept changes dramatically in 30 years, right? Like when this generation grows up, there's going to be the loyalty aspect just won't be there. I agree. I agree. So we're running out of time, as always, in our podcast. Let me ask you, uh, finally, what are your top three predictions uh, for the industry, for your industry, over the course of the next five, ten years? Yeah, I, I think a big one is – you know, as we collect more data, and, you know, I think it's been said that 90% of the data has been collected over the last two years on people, um, there's this whole uh, thought about, you know, data privacy, data breaches, and, and, you know, we've seen a whole bunch of stuff, and I feel like people are becoming almost desensitized to that. But I do believe there'll be um, a lot of uh, advancement from the AI side on authentication and, and, and fraud detection. And um, so, you know, I, I think we have the responsibility as financial service providers or financial technology companies to take uh, personal data very seriously of our customers and using technology to uh, really help on the authentication side and the fraud detection side and the fraud prevention side. So I think. AI and authentication and, um, and, and and fraud detection will become very pervasive. Like, we won't even know it's there, and it'll just be for the better. So, like, you know, we'll be able to trust and not become desensitized to, to data breaches. Uh, I think overall for the industry, and we see this in Europe, open banking will become a real thing, um, you know, where customers will be able to own their own data, move it easily between different institutions, uh, be able to get products they want from non-banks because it makes sense for them. It's more customized for them. So I think uh, we will see a real uh, movement to you owning your banking data the same way as you owning your health data, the same way as you owning all the data about you and and being able to use that for your benefit. Um, And I think the big one, and it's probably more just personal, is that we as 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 uh, financial service companies, and again, the ethical use of data. So I think right now it's still very early. It's only been a couple of years that 
we've started seeing the use of data the way it has in financial services. And so I think the ethical use of data and how we prescribe as consumers to our data being used and, and allowing that data, I'd like to believe that um, that data will be used. Like right, right now, it's still about optimization of marketing and how do we get people into products and how do we improve the profitability of business. And I'd like to believe that in the next five years, we will see a movement to, to using that data to provide better products. So, you know, one example I use is that um, today when you go apply for something, you get rejected, really. And, and uh, I believe there's a world when you apply for something and you get rewarded. So, you know, you apply for a mortgage and because you provided something or because you're doing something that's more safe or better or you are, you have a history, you get rewarded. Your rate goes down. And so I believe there's this world where products themselves evolve and become, um, you know, very different than products we know right now. I mean, the truth is I've been in financial services for a long time. I'm a computer science guy and I'm horrible at understanding financial products. And even though I build them and and uh, I should be very fluent. And there's something wrong with that. And, you know, there's a certain complexity right now in banks and products that needs to be very simplified. And I believe that data uh, and AI will help simplify those products. So uh, I think really on the authentication, on the, on the safety and security of our data, that we'll see a lot of improvements. Um, open banking will be huge in terms of giving customers the flexibility to do what they want with their data and, and get products. And then us as providers and as financial service companies, just how are we using this data more ethically to to provide Canadians or, or just global citizens with better products that make sense to them and not just look at our bottom line profits? Mm. That was great. Thank you very much for your time today, Sal. Oh, you're very welcome. I mean, that was, that was fun. <laughs> yeah, thank you. All right. Have a great day. You have been listening to the Innovators Behind Disruption, a podcast series brought to you by Evolve ETFs. Remain educated. Be informed. Sign up for our newsletter and learn more at EvolveETFs.com.